The path to success is rarely a straight line. And the path to success as a creative professional? That line tends to be especially squiggly. My name is Emmeline. I'm an independent recording artist, a singer-songwriter, a published author, and a lifelong creative. In my new series, Journey of an Artist, I talk to creatives from all walks of life about their passions, their paths, and the persistence they've employed to reach a point of professional and personal fulfillment. Throughout my journey, I've been blessed to interact with all kinds of artists, voice actors, poets, dancers, musicians, graphic designers, stylists, and more. In Journey of an Artist, we discuss the decisions they've made, the challenges they've faced, the obstacles they've overcome, and where they'd like their vision to take them next. We also reinforce the belief that with love, grit, perseverance, and an abundance of joy, anything is possible. You can live the life you want, the life that brings you the most joy, and my guests are living proof. This week, my guest is the phenomenal singer Brian Schecksneider, an alumnus of Juilliard and a former baritone soloist with the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Brian now teaches voice in the larger Dallas-Fort Worth area. He's here today to talk about his journey from performer to teacher, vocal technique, and how his career has changed over time. Welcome back to Journey of an Artist. My name is Emmeline, and my guest for today is the fantastic Brian Schecksneider. How are you doing, my friend? Fine. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Sure. So we have been talking about me having you on for a while because you have led such a cool creative life. But the way we met is that you teach voice lessons in the DFW area. Right. How right. long is that something you've been doing? Right now, let's say that was 1997 when I started. So it's at 21 years. Yeah. 1997, 20, yeah, 24 years. Oh, 24 years. Okay. Yeah. It's a long time. And you you started teaching here after leaving New York, right? I did. Uh, my intent was not to teach voice when we first got here. My intent was to go into the computer industry, which was, you know, really starting to bust out at that time. And although Dallas wasn't the center of all the computer industry, California was really. I just thought that might be something that I would want to go into because I had been experimenting and messing around with computers for quite a while before uh, moving to Texas. But as it turns out, I just kind of fell into teaching because I got started with a couple of students and it just blew up. And I was like, well, I guess this is what I'm going to be doing. Was it something that you enjoyed right off the bat? Yeah, I enjoyed doing it. And I did do it some in New York while I was singing, but I never really proffered it. I really wasn't trying to push it as a main thing that I was doing. It sounds like it sort of found you rather than you seeking it out. Pretty much did. Yeah, that's awesome. So you talked about being in New York. Um, There, you performed with the Met. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? It was wonderful. I mean, I really, really enjoyed it. And, you know, I, 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 even that portion of my life, I got started kind of, I wouldn't say accidentally, but like putting one foot in front of the other and everything just kind of fell into place. And I just followed along a path and found myself at the Met Sings. So when did you start with the Met? You went to Juilliard and you went to school in the South before then. Right. I got an undergrad at USL in Lafayette, Louisiana, and then got invited to go to Juilliard full scholarship after that. So did post-grad studies there and was at Juilliard about four years, maybe a little bit short of four years. And then within that fourth year, made my debut at the Met. And so I just left Juilliard and started along that professional path. 
Yeah, I think the arts tend to be sort of an interesting educational endeavor because technically you go to school to work, right? But some people, it sounds like you ended up finding work before you graduated. And so... Yeah, um, I mean, I'd already done a a couple of uh, small jobs when I was doing my undergrad. But when I was at Juilliard, I started performing kind of all over the place. So by the time, from the time I started uh, at Juilliard until the fourth year I was there, I ended up performing all around the United States and Canada, South America, and had already landed a debut with the Paris Opera before I left Juilliard. So did you enjoy touring? I did. I enjoyed going to all different places and, and, and experiencing all, everything that comes with touring, but living out of a suitcase isn't exactly a pleasure. So it was nice for you to find a home at the Met? Yeah, yeah. And once, once I started there, I was pretty much busy all of the time during the Met season. And the Met season used to take place all the way through what would be normally school season, starting up in September and finishing up in May. And then uh, usually the whole time that I was performing at the Met, I was going overseas during the summer, same with companies there. So you would take like soloist gigs in Europe or? Yeah, everything I was doing was by contract. It was contract workers. So, you know, it's like gunslingers meeting up at a certain spot to have a shootout. And basically, yeah, every all of the, the stars are <laughs> congregated to do a show in a certain place. And so every time, you know, you're meeting up with different people from all over, like you might have a cast where one person's from Italy, one person's from Germany, one from the United States, one from Japan, blah, blah, blah. Pretty interesting. That sounds really cool, though. It sounds like you get like a group of singers together and lots of different backgrounds. And so you get to sort of do you have time to chat and interact with those people when you're doing a Absolutely. Program you know, every night you can, you go out to dinner with each other and make friends. And yeah, the your rehearsal period generally, from the time you get there to you're going into production, usually when you're visiting a company as a independent artist, it's usually about 11 days. You know, you start, you arrive on a Monday and by the time you wind out 11 days out, you're doing Thursday night opening a show week and a half later. That's awesome. So you get to meet people from all over. Oh yeah, it was fun. Yeah, and then make friends and then go back to New York and sort of have a home base. Pretty much. That's awesome. How many seasons were you with the Met? I debuted in 1981, and I think the last season I sang at the Met was probably like, I don't know if it was 1993 or 94. I don't remember. That's a long career. Yeah, for opera, it is. I mean, that's a, well, that's a long time to be anywhere these days, but especially yeah. for opera, that's a long time. Mm-hmm. So what made you leave New York? My wife and I adopted a little boy. And during his first year when he was growing up, basically I was going out and touring a lot. And I just lost my killer instinct to want to go out and leave him. And so Sharon and I decided we'd both change our careers and, and find some other place to live instead of raising him in New York. Because doing anything in New York is expensive. And then if that's not your focus to be at the, the height of your profession and whatever you're doing, then it'd be easier to choose another place to live. Yeah. We had family that lived here near Dallas. And also we, every year we'd go vacation and generally go to Las Vegas. And so the connecting flight was usually in Dallas. So a couple of times we got off and kind of looked around Dallas and we decided to move here. Yeah, it's a good central location. It is. It's easy to get to lots of different places. It is. And it's, you know, it's pretty widespread. So you got everything from rural all the way to metropolitan. 
you know, in the DFW area. Yeah, so you kind of get the best of all the worlds. That's right. That's really neat. So once you came and settled down here, you started teaching. How did you find your first student? <laughs> so we moved here in 1997, as I said before, and we moved here in March. April is my wife's birthday, April 19th. So we went to Macaroni Grill to celebrate our birthday. Mm -hmm. And uh, when we were sitting there, this guy comes up to our table and he says, hey, I'd like to sing something for you. Because they had these Italian singers that would go around at different tables and, you know, sing whatever, any kind of Italian opera songs or arias or whatever. And so he, he came up to the table and asked, you know, can I sing something for you? So I was like, it's her birthday. You can sing happy birthday to her. So he said, <laughs> okay. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to sing happy birthday to her, but I'm going to teach you guys the words so you can sing along. So I was like, okay. So he starts off, Bon Natale, ate, Bon Natale, ate. So he says, uh, after he goes through, he says, all right, you got that? So join in as, as I'm starting to sing and, and we'll sing together. So he starts off and he sings and so I'm kind of murmuring a little bit on the first line. The second line, I start to get a little bit louder. By the time I get to the end of it, I'm like full force, operatic, full blown singing. And when we finished, the whole restaurant was at a dead silence. And all of a sudden, everyone was like, happened <laughs> everything like that. So the guy said like, you know, you're pretty good at this. Have you ever thought about singing? And I was like, yeah. I, I thought about it before, but I decided against it. <laughs> and he said, well, um, so I explained to him that I had been a, a singer professionally and I was at the end of that period of my life, really. He's like, well, would you consider giving me some lessons? And I was like, yeah, sure. So he came the next week for a couple of lessons and he seemed to like it a lot. And before I knew it, he had already called somebody else who was looking for a teacher and they set up a lesson. So within that first week of me teaching him those lessons, someone else came for a lesson. The next week, I had a couple of more students that came and it blossomed and it just kind of grew from there. Yeah. That's so cool. Yeah. That's such an organic experience, too. It is. And it wasn't what I wanted to do. You know, I was wanting to go into computers and this kind of just enveloped. Yeah, it's we talk a lot on the show about how the path to creative success is not necessarily a straight line. And it's not necessarily one that you can ever predict. Kind of like art. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so life has a way of taking you on a path. And part of being open to success as an artist is being open to wherever it takes you. I'd say it's very much that way. Teaching or learning, teaching yourself voice alongside of uh, someone guiding you. I always describe as uh, self-discovery. And the reason why I do that is because that's kind of like every artist that develops no matter what it is they do, whether it's painting or whether it's playing an instrument, no matter what it is. So it's the student turning into an artist by discovering everything they need to discover while applying themselves. Words are art for them. And it sounds like you view that as sort of students getting to try on different styles or different songs and feeling out how those things work in their voice. Pretty much, yeah. That whole experience is, is every every voice lesson, There's you can start off with a formula in terms of vocal exercises, but every voice lesson, it, it it's totally different. Does that make it more interesting for you? 
Yeah, I would say so. It does. You know, if it was all about mechanics, then you don't need a teacher. That That's the whole thing. So you see these things on YouTube where these teachers are, they have these courses, you know, learn how to sing in 10 easy lessons. And I'm always like, God, had it been so easy when I was trying to learn how to sing, I surely would have loved doing that. But I don't think that's possible. I think you have to have another set of ears. I think you have to have another person who's guiding you all the way through. If you don't have that, um, you're more likely to mess up. It's not as easy as just adding water and stirring. You know, it's just, it's a complicated matter. And one of the things that you do as a voice teacher is you don't just teach classically. You teach pop stylings. And those are different. Like the way you approach classical voice is different than the way you approach pop singing. But you've it's absolutely different. yeah. But yeah. you've managed to be able to communicate to different styles of singers how to make their sound sound authentic. Was that something you were taught to do, or was that something that you sort of developed as a performer? Well, when I was finishing my career in New York, I started with a guy by the name of Bill Riley and um, learned quite a bit from him. Worked with a guy by the name of Maitland Peters. Learned a lot from him as well. Most of my studying with every teacher except for Bill Riley was all about classical music. But when I started working with Bill, in one lesson we would sing classical music, in another lesson we'd sing big band music like Frank Sinatra stuff, and another lesson we'd sing like rock. So trying to work through these different vocal approaches taught me a lot about how different those approaches can be and what the necessities are involved in terms of approaching your voice differently that way. So when I got here, I was basically thinking, well, I can teach everyone what I've learned basically from a classical standpoint. That didn't work too well. I learned that very quickly. So then I developed a little set of vocal aces that I thought would be short enough to where any student could focus on them and get through them very quickly and not become bored by them or not becoming outdone by them. You know what I mean? So if you're teaching for a group of people and it spans between people that are a little bit older, more mature and younger people, and quite a few of my students when I first started were young, you don't want them standing there 30, 45 minutes working on vocal ices. How long do you think people should warm up? How long do you think that should take? When you're first starting, I think that, I think demanding of yourself 15 to 20 minutes would be appropriate. When you are further along in terms of the exercises, not being voice builders, but being more of a warm up, 10 minutes at the most. Yeah. So it sounds like it's sort of a conditioning process. It is. Yeah. So when you first had students, were they coming to you for classical music or were they coming to you for pop or were they coming to you for kind of an amalgamation of all of it? I'd say 90% for pop, maybe 10% for classical music. And pop, I'd put every other genre of music in that group, meaning country, uh, rock. You can think of the two kinds of vocal music that I think have a likeness is jazz and classical music. Everything outside of that, I put in the general folder of pop. So you would classify musical theater then as pop? Yes, absolutely. The one thing that musical theater requires is that you characterize your voice. So you almost become a, a voice impersonator where you have to wrap not only your, your vocal technique, but also your character into your vocal brooch. Was that something you ever had to do in opera when you were playing characters or no? Yes, but you're more harnessed by your 
vocal technique or your vocal approach because opera aficionados want to hear a specific sound when you're singing. Doesn't mean it's the most correct sound, doesn't mean it's the healthiest sound, doesn't mean any of those things. It just means that that's what they expect to hear when they go to hear an opera. Anyone that sings classically bad, it's just bad vocal technique. It doesn't mean that they're not making the right kind of sound that people want to hear. It means that there's something wrong with their technique. So you have good and bad classical singers, even though the the vocal approach is, has a lightness, you know, by the sound they're making. And same thing in all the other genres of music. Yeah, it sounds like you have to learn a skill set and then you have to execute that skill set. And there are people who do that well and people who haven't necessarily learned the skill set in the way that allows them to do what they do sustainably. Right. In, in opera, I think it requires more skill sets than most of the other genres of music. If you're singing in any one of the main languages in opera, which would be German, Italian, French, or four, English maybe as well, but the three main ones would be German, Italian, French, you kind of have to have good language skills in order to be able to sing in those different languages. So besides that, being well-rounded in terms of your understanding of those languages in order that you can bring to those languages nuance when, you, when, you know, when you're singing in any one of them, and then still maintaining your vocal approach, that becomes a, a task, you know, it's pretty difficult. Plus, opera has the physically demanding aspect of having to sing across a hall. Yeah, when you say a hall, you mean an auditorium. Yeah, like a performance hall, like a giant yes. performance space. And and a lot of people, when I tell them this, they don't really expect it, but opera singers don't use microphones. So I'll say that because I, I expect that everyone would know that as an opera singer. But when I've said this to people before, they're really kind of surprised. I'm like, yeah, so you're standing there on a stage and you're singing, like, let's say at the Met, average orchestra might be 100 pieces or so. And you're after singing over them in this huge face, you know? So it's like three and a half hours of solid yelling. You know? For multiple it's, nights in a week. Uh, yeah, well, a place like the Met would spell off and do a show in rotation maybe every fourth night, I would say. Something like that. So you guys would get some time to recover. If you're only involved in one show. If you're involved in other uh, shows, you're doing the other shows between those. So, so there've been doing multiple shows at once? Yeah, I would say there were a couple of times where I did as many as six performances in one week. Now that was rare, but it did happen a couple of times. And there were, I think, three times where I sang a matinee and saying the evening performance, and it was two different operas. That's very difficult. Very, very difficult. So. Especially if they're in two different languages. Yeah. So you have to be in a totally different headspace each time. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like a lot of what you bring then to lessons is not just like the physical and the technique approach, but the psychological approach, explaining to a singer what headspace they need to be in to create a certain sound or to give authenticity to a certain song. Yeah, I mean, that that's the artistic or the creative process. I mean, the hope is that all the technical stuff you have behind you, by the time you get to that point where you're performing, you're not struggling to sing pitches and you're not struggling to remember what the melodies are. You're not, you know, none of that is part of what you're doing or performing. You're already past all that. And you are trying to bring realism 
to what's happening in front of the audience, you know? In the storyline, your character has to take life and then you're interacting with other people that have a likeness to what you're doing, you know? So how many students do you take on now? You, like what, what for you, you constitutes a full studio? Well, I, I'm not I'm not wanting to teach what I used to teach. So I mean, for me, if I had 25 students running in a week, that's that's fine with me. When I first started, though, I was teaching 55 lessons a week. I mean, it was like, you 55 know. hour long lessons a week? That's correct. Wow. That's a long, yeah. that's a long week. Very long, very stressful and work oriented. It's tough. That's a big studio. 55 is huge. It is. So do you find that having a smaller studio allows you to sort of have more emotional and intellectual bandwidth to give to each student and then to sort of have some time to recalibrate? Absolutely. I think you, you become brain dead after a while. You have to give so much in lessons. And I, I don't know if people realize that. So maybe, yeah, it's not as physical oriented, but mentally it's depleting. You know, it's tough. When you and I have talked offline about this, but it's different to perform than it is to teach because teaching requires a very specific ear to be able to sort of hear and diagnose what's going on with the singer and then to be able to give advice tailored directly to that singer to address whatever issue they're having. So you, there's a lot of mental concentration involved as well as a skill that you have to develop that's in large part entirely different from the skills you develop as a performer. Yeah, and I think that therein lies the whole gifting in terms of teaching. Some people, I feel, teach in a very programmed way, meaning they can teach everything that they were taught and they can relate it to students well. But if it gets outside of the boundaries of what they were taught, not as easily can work in that vein. I'm not being disparaging to teachers. I think all teachers are valid at some level, depending on what students they're working with. What I'm saying is that in order for a teacher to be really, really good at what they're doing, I think they have to be able to roll with the punches. They have to understand a student's abilities, even without hearing them or seeing them, and then can forge a way for the student to find their way to the best of their ability within the art form that they are attempting to progress at. And that's different for every student. You know, You're, uh, the teacher has to perceive everything that the student is doing everything that the student might be able to do beyond their understanding of what they can do and really know where the general limitations are for every voice, every classification and uh, drive the student, push the student to meet the best that they can meet in terms of their abilities yeah. to achieve the best they can achieve. So it's not a one-size-fits-all at all because you have to create an entirely unique path for every single student. Absolutely. It's quite different for every student. So you can you can use, like, I use the same vocalises for every student, but I don't have the same expectation of every student. So there are students that come in that are not very talented, and there are students that come in that are very talented. My approach to this is that I don't think it's up to me to choose who can and who can't sing. My job is to help the person to sing better, no matter how they sing. So most teachers, I don't think, view their work that way. I think that most teachers want to cull out really better students and then turn away the ones that they don't feel as talented because they're not willing to subject 
themselves to scorn by way of people looking at people that are not as talented and going, well, look, this is what this teacher taught. So you hear how the student is making sounds. My answer to that is if you go to my website, you can hear a variety of different students that I have up there that I worked with all of them. I recorded 95%, if not more of them that you hear on the website. And when you hear a general consensus or you, you hear across the board of a sound that a studio is making or achieving with all their students, you get a pretty good idea of what the, the teacher is capable of. But if the teacher can't provide you that, I think you're just kind of shooting from the hip to try to figure out whether the teacher's good or not. I don't know how you would figure that out. Well, what I hear you saying that I think is really important is that you sort of approach each lesson with the idea that no matter where the student is, they can always get better. Absolutely. That there's hope for everybody to walk into your studio and become a better singer. And that's really why anybody takes voice lessons is to become a better singer. Every student that I've ever taught has become better. Has every student that I've ever taught become very, very good? No, it's not possible. But that's also not everybody's goal. Like as a music teacher, one teacher to another, I feel like part of our job is to listen and to determine what the goal of the student is. Hey, I have people that come here and say all the time, you know, I'm I'm not here because I want to be a performer. I'm I'm here just because I want to learn how to sing better. Yeah. Okay, fine. So for them, it doesn't matter if they're very, very good. It just matters that they're better than they were yesterday. That's right. And very, very good is subjective, right? Because what I hear you saying from an operatic perspective is people have an idea of what sounds, quote unquote, very, very good. And if it doesn't sound like that, they think it's not opera. But that's not necessarily true. That's just the social expectation that's been forced upon the genre. It's all subjective. It's all subjective. Um, I think our best critics are ourselves. Regardless of what anyone else might say about it, either you feel good about what you're doing or you don't. And that's where the division of, well, what do I need to do to improve the way I'm singing? You know, how, how do I go about that? How do I achieve that? You know, that's the, all of that's important, really important. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's great as a teacher to have that mentality that your only job is to help a student improve because then you give the student freedom to kind of chart their own path. Like, do you want to get better as this kind of singer? Do you want to get better as a singer in general? Do you want to become a better country singer? Do you want to become a better opera singer? Do you have multiple genres in which you want to exist? Do you want to perform? Do you want to be a studio singer? When you don't lay a specific set of expectations on a student, you free the student up to decide what their expectation is for themselves. And that's a much more empowering journey. Not only expectations, limitations. Mm. Because uh, I, I think that way too often instructors, by way of their limitations, they put those limitations on the student. And then the student is closing doors off while they're trying to learn how to do it better. But the point is, is that when they open, they have a full range of choices to make. When they're finished, if you're dealing with your instruction this way, all of a sudden you get tunnel vision and there's only a very specific path for you. Anything outside of that, can't do it. I think that's so important. There's this Elizabeth Gilbert quotation where she says, arguing your limitations forces you to keep them. So, you know, when a teacher says to a student, oh, you can only do this, what you do is you limit the student to that. Or they'll maybe might say you can only do this, but they will say, do it this way. This is the right way. 
Yeah. That goes back to me saying before an audience listening to someone singing, what is right and what is wrong in terms of singing? Well, if you're turning on the audience, then it's right. If you're not, then it's wrong. That's, right. There's a difference between that and healthy singing and an unhealthy singing. So healthy singing and unhealthy singing to you refer specifically to the physiology of it. That's right. That's why it's important to have really good technique. You can hear somebody stand there and sing an incredible show one night. Question is, can they get up the next day and also sing another show or, you know, feel able to do it whether they're not singing another show? So do you have singers come to you and say, I think I'm good, but I don't think it's sustainable and I need it to be sustainable? Absolutely. So what is yeah. your approach when you have those singers? First thing you have to do is, is listen to them and then be able to do a little bit of forensic work and try to figure out what might be the issues involved. Sometimes it might not be singing. I mean, I've dealt with singers before where professional singers, they're going out and they are doing sets. And then I go and listen to them do these sets. And they're, the way they've set up the sets is defeating to their being able to endure all the way through the last set to the last song of the last set because the way they set them up. So like you have to, in that type of situation, it not being a vocal problem, it might be a problem of the fact that there's nothing, not enough space in there for them to breathe in terms of giving themselves a break. Everything's hard and harder as they, as they go along. So it makes it yeah. tough. Like putting all the tough songs from Wicked at the front of your set. Yeah, that's Wicked. Exactly. That's Wicked. That's crazy. Who would do that? Maybe Adina Menzel would. I don't know. I don't know what her set list looks like. I don't either. That's such an important thing to know, too, that singing doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? Like the way you live affects the way you sing. The way you structure your set affects the way you sing. Yes. Um, health, rest are very important in terms of, and not just physical health, mental health, very important in terms of your singing. Yeah, you have to, your, your, your body is the vessel that your sound is coming out of. Your body is the instrument that your sound is coming out of. So like if all this stuff isn't together, you're liable not to be able to make really good sounds or be expressive in a very good way. Yeah, you said something when you and I started working together that really kind of shook me because I was so classically trained. You were like, good music is not necessarily perfect. Good music makes you feel something. Like your right. job isn't to be perfect. Your job is to make the audience believe you. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. And that's a really important paradigm shift. But I think that almost requires more mental health because it requires you to step into an emotional space every time you give a performance. It also is demanding of you in that you have to take a chance. If you don't take a chance, you're never going to get there artistically in terms of the kind of performance that you want to provide to listeners. It can't happen. Absolutely. And sometimes you're rewarded for that chance and sometimes you aren't. But part of the practice is going over and over and over and taking the chance, right? Like training yourself to take the chance. When, when, uh, so when I was singing in opera, you'd, sometimes you'd hear these people say, God, the audience is dead tonight. And I would always look at them and go like, I'm not feeling that. So after hearing that many times, I was thinking like, well, the audience is dead, but probably to you because what you're putting out there, they're responding to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so I feel like when you're performing, although we'd like for it to be a reciprocal type of endeavor, I'm not so sure it is. So maybe when we're performing, a lot of times we have to be more of a giver than a taker. 
Yeah. So you have to go out with the mentality that it's your job to give the audience something, not that you're enjoying this kind of reciprocity that allows you to show up and they show up and then whatever happens, happens. Well, when you say an audience would be different on a Friday night or Saturday night than performing, doing a gig on a Monday night or, or Tuesday Monday night. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's pretty much it. So part of the training that you offer then is teaching the student what kind of energy they have to bring to the stage. Right. And helping them find that energy, like helping them find not only the technique, but the emotional impetus for the technique that allows what they do to be sustainable and believable. So important. So very important. Without that, it's impossible to, for all of the climatic points in your music to take place, it has to be energy field. It's not, there's no way to accomplish that. I love that you talk about that. I think we talk a lot on the show about how the artist audience performance contract is kind of sacred, but how, you know, we, we make a promise as performers to deliver something to an audience and people want to believe that there's an audience component in that. And there absolutely is, but ultimately it's our job as performers to go out there and deliver what we promise to deliver. Right. Regardless of how the audience shows up or how many of the audience members show up. Well, and in some cases, how about how much they pay for a ticket? Mm. You're in New York and you got people that are sitting in the front row and they paid $125 for tonight's ticket and you're just not feeling it. <laughs> you're the one with the problem. <laughs> As a performer, you know, you're the, you're the guy that's the problem, not the guy that paid that much money to come and see you perform. Yeah. Well, and I mean, it brings you, it brings you into a space of greater gratitude, right? Because you're realizing, oh, like this is sort of a gift to get to give this to these people. You know, I, I would say that I can agree with that and I can see how people might think that I would never have that feeling. Really? No, I feel like it's a, it's a job. It's a high level job, like doing, I don't know that a brain surgeon working on your brain would think, well, you know, it's great that I can give this gift of working on this person's brain right now while I'm doing it. You know, it would be like maybe it might be gratuitous at the end of your performance in terms of a round of applause you might receive and that being very gratifying. And then you understanding that, okay, you did your job. And so there's that contract that's been met, yeah. but while you're doing it, to me, it's a little bit more serious in terms of the work involved to me, but yeah, this is as a performer way back when. No, but I think that's a really interesting observation. And I think it, I mean, one of the things that we talk about on Journey of a Song, when we're talking about like writing and singing really difficult emotional stuff is the journey of putting yourself back in that headspace and how when you perform a song like that, and you and I have sort of talked about this offline as well, when you're performing a song that has a very clear emotional message, you have a very clear and firm responsibility as a performer to go out and deliver that emotional message. Right. And yeah, to make that authentic. And the work of that is difficult because it means that you can't allow yourself mentally to be anywhere else. So it, is that sort of what you're talking about when you talk yes, about the work of it? That's exactly what I'm talking about. In other words, at that point in time, you're not, uh, when I was performing, I wasn't thinking so much of myself a cut above in terms of the artistry that I was providing and then it being so wonderful what I was doing. What I was thinking of is I need to be the best detailed either scientist, mechanic, whatever it is you want to think of in that way to make sure that every detail I'm paying attention to while I'm doing it 
so that it's revealed to the audience in a way that comes out as more poetic or artistic or add words to that, whatever you want it to be. But it doesn't happen until you've laid in all that work while you're doing it. Did I enjoy performing? Yes. Was it enjoyable while I was in the middle of a performance in the moment? No, that's not what it was. It was concentrated work, detailed work at that moment. So it's it's a different kind of engagement. It's not about, is it joyful every time or is it rewarding every time? It's about just the act of being in it every time. Yeah, and being present. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, getting to a point of presence is hard. Every night is different and... Sometimes it's like really easy and no problem. You roll right into it. Sometimes it's extremely difficult. I mean, there've been times that before performance, I was like, so tonight I feel there's a fight that's about to begin. I don't know who's going to win and whether it's going to be them or it's going to be me, but I'm going to damn well try for it to be me, you know, just knowing that was going to be that hard. Yeah. And then going about your business, making it happen, you know? For sure. I always do do think this. I think that one thing we have to take into consideration, I think that if we always are trying to make today's performance or today's work a little bit better than yesterday, there's no way for us to get complacent at what we're doing. In other words, it's always going to be progressively better, better. And I think that's a good way of thinking of things. One time I was doing a workshop somewhere and one of the younger people asked me, they said, uh, what, are, are you afraid that guys that are younger than you are coming along, they're going to go ahead and take your place? I was like, no, that's inevitable. They're, that's going to happen. But right now, while I'm on top doing this, as long as I'm better than I was yesterday, they have to get that much better than me just to catch up to where it was yesterday. So no, I'm not worried about that. Well, and I think it's so easy in today's comparison-laden culture to get distracted by this idea of who's the best. But the truth is, it's all subjective. So <laughs> that only... and who, who, who cares? Right. Look how many, how many performance venues there are, how many places there are to choose from. There's not a limited lane to where everybody that's good has to stay in one lane going towards what they're going towards. It's not like that. No, not you at know? all. Yeah, yeah. And there's you have to kind of focus on the abundance. Like the opportunities are there if you continue to make yourself better. That's it. That's pretty much it. That's awesome. So you don't just teach now. You don't just exist as a teacher. You do get to do some computer work. Uh, You've been working on production and you build your own computers. Can you talk a little bit about that journey? Well, I'm, I'm an enthusiast more than I am a producer or a songwriter and engineer, but I do love messing around with all the equipment and creating music and um, the whole process of all the technical stuff having to do with DAWs and preamps and compressors and, you know, monitors. And I do, I put together every computer that I work on. In fact, I just bought two new builds yesterday because I didn't tell you this. I had a fire the other night. No. Uh, night before last at one o'clock in the morning. And what it was is I have a computer upstairs that I've had for 10 years. And when I went upstairs after the alarms went off and sent me up there, the computer was on fire in the middle of the floor. And I mean, it looked like a campfire. Oh, my God, Brian. Yeah. And I ran downstairs with it, grabbed it, ran downstairs with it, threw it out the back door. 
Holy cow. So uh, it was it was kind of frightening. That's terrifying. I'm glad you Yeah, I don't think it had anything to do with the way I built it. I think it had to do with the age of it, you know, yeah. power well, supply I mean, or something old. like that went out. I feel yeah. like computers are only built to last for so long. At least it wasn't a phone in my ear blowing up. Yeah, absolutely. Is everybody okay? Oh, yeah. Everybody's okay. And you have a mm-hmm. pool in your backyard, so I'm guessing it went straight into the pool? No, but it went right by it. But I didn't throw them in the pool. So you're going to replace it with a new one? Yeah. That's awesome. That's so cool. So if people are sitting here listening and thinking, wow, Brian really knows what he's talking about. I have always wanted to sing. Or if they are currently engaged in a musical career and thinking, I need to get better at this so that I can do it for a really long time. What is the best way for them to find you? Go to my website, esfogostudio.com. And um, there's contact information there. And they contact me and I will be back in touch and then set up a lesson. Go from there. And you don't just teach in the DFW area. You teach all over. You have students everywhere. Yeah, I teach by Skype people everywhere. So if you're listening on the radio, that's BESVocalStudio.com. And if you are listening on a podcast, you just scroll up and click. It will be linked. But that's B as in Brian, ESVocalStudio.com. Yep. You've had such a cool career, and you are such an inspirational teacher, and you take so much time and care with your students. Um, And I am so grateful to have found you, and I'm so grateful for what you do for all of the people you teach. Thanks for taking the time to talk to us today. Well, thanks for having me on. Always. Always. Um, I will see you very soon, but I am very glad that you took the time to come talk about your musical journey and to share some hope for all of those people out there who are thinking that they really want to or need to find their voice. Sure. Thanks so much for joining me for this week's episode of Journey of an Artist featuring Brian Schecksneider. To learn more about Brian or to schedule a voice lesson, you can visit his official website at besvocalstudio.com. That's besvocalstudio.com. For behind-the-scenes information and more about Journey of an Artist, you can follow me, Emmeline, on social media at at Emmeline Music. That's at E-M-M-E-L-I-N-E Music. Don't forget to check out my other show, Journey of a Song, wherever you listen to podcasts. Journey of an Artist airs Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Central Standard Time on Deep Ellum Radio and is available as a podcast the very next day. Its sister show, Journey of a Song, airs Thursday nights at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time on Deep Ellum Radio, and past episodes are available wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll see you next week. Until then, stay passionate.